Well, we're starting a new year, and every time we start a new year, we have a new emphasis. And by the way, just because we leave the emphasis behind doesn't mean that you just stop doing that. So, you know, the, a couple years ago, and I first started doing this, the emphasis was on reading through the Bible. And I hope that you're continuing to, to read the Bible. And, and when you get finished, uh, read it again. Um, if you think like, well, I've read it so many times, um, read every other word. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Um, re read, read the Bible again, or go back to a certain section that maybe you didn't really get and you want to read through and try to understand it. And, and this past year, we talked about serving and ministering and being not just what we do here in our church, but, but out in the community. This year, the focus is on, it's on discipleship. And I know that in some ways I fight kind of an uphill battle here because a lot of people have a wrong understanding what discipleship is. Um, and they think it's, some people think it's like, well, it just means you're a follower of Christ, right? So you're a disciple. So that's it. I, I got that. I'm good. Uh, it means we kind of come to church and, you know, we, maybe we go to a Bible study here and there. That's discipleship, right? So I got that. And then there's another group of people that think like, oh, discipleship, that's for the really serious Christians, right? I, I've, I've taken like, you know, Christianity, there were like three options, you know, the premium package, the good package, and then the basic package. I just wanted the basic package, you know, the eternal life, heaven thing, um, you know, that one. Discipleship's the more premium package, right? No. It's this uphill battle because we've become confused about what discipleship is. We think it's maybe a program or a set of lessons or class, and, and that's what it is. And, or we think it's about, you know, getting some, some certain kinds of knowledge in our heads or certain kind of practices. It's really not the case. And it's part of the reason we have this problem is because... Um, it's kind of the good thing that, that we live in a, in a free society where there's, there's not like persecution that comes against us for meeting here. Like none of us are here afraid that, you know, the, the government's going to come in and, and, you know, take away the pastor. Some of you may be wishing they would. But, but you know, they're not going to take away the pastor, throw you in prison. That, that's not going to happen. And because of that, we don't have what I think would happen in that setting. Because I think in that setting, there would only be basically two kinds of people here. There would be people who are really committed to Christ and accept the dangers and the risk. And then there would be the spies who are just waiting to turn us in. Right? That would be the only people here. But in our society, it's not that way. And so the church becomes much more of a of a mishmash of different kinds of people. You know, you have the, the ritualists, the superstition kind of people, the people who, who come to church because they think it makes God happy. And that's what good Christians do. You go to church, and they get to check that off their box every week that I've gone to church and done my thing. Our churches also have you know, people who are just curious Back in the 90s when someone 
uh, came up with this term, 80s and 90s, they called these people seekers. I don't really call these people seekers. I call them the curious. They, they come, they, they heard about something, maybe you invited them or something, and they, they're curious. They want to they kind of get some idea of, you know, what do Christians believe? What do they do? And then I think you get to the real seekers, the people that, that, are, that are trying to really understand. And, and they're not just coming and sitting passively. They're like, they're asking questions. They're perhaps even engaged in a Bible study. And then you get that next group. And that next group is, is people that I call them committed. They're committed to Christ. And you might go, well, that's it, right? No, it's not really it. Because that group is good, and that might be most of us. We're committed to Christ. We're committed to, to trying to grow in our faith and trying to understand. But we haven't gotten to this, this last level. And that's where we're, we're part of the, what I call the core. And we talked about this a couple, week, a couple months ago, about being a healthy core. You see... Committed to Christ is really important. It's crucial. It's essential. But if we're going to be the church God called us to be, then what we need to have is we need to have more and more people who are part of what's called the core. And those are people who are not just committed to Christ. They're committed to living out their faith with each other. Right here. And central to living out your faith is not just being discipled, but it's discipling others. In fact, if you're being discipled right now, your goal is just that someday you will be able to disciple others. You'll be able to teach others, help others to grow and to learn. And when I think about people on the kind of path of discipleship in this kind of mishmash of the church, the ritualist, they're not interested in discipleship. They're just interested in checking off the box. And they might look as the most impressive Christians because they're always here whenever the door is open. If you looked at, you know, how much they give or how much, you know, attendance and all of that, they, they win all the awards. But they're not necessarily doing it for the right reasons. And the curious, well, the curious are curious. They're, they're not really even sure what they're looking at. But when we start talking about disciples and people who are kind of already on that path of discipleship, I kind of start there with the seeker group. It goes to the committed group and then to the core. I don't know how to tell you how important discipleship is. I don't understand how discipleship became an optional thing for super-Christians, but not for everybody. I don't understand it. I don't know the history of how it kind of fell out of our, of our churches and our emphasis. I don't know how we got to this place of, of where we, we, we don't really understand what discipleship is. I'm not sure. And really, I'm not that interested in that what I'm really interested in is saying, okay, moving forward, 
How do we become that truly Great Commission church? The Great Commission church is not one that simply shares the gospel. It is one that makes disciples. We put that in our constitution. We put that in our mission statement. We're not just here to kind of exist and to be a nice place, a nice group for people to come connect with. No, we're about making disciples. A healthy church is, is a community of true disciples, disciples of Christ who are being discipled and at the same time discipling others. And what is this word disciple? We know we talked about it for the past two or three months, but, but I think it's important that we keep going back to this definition because I want you to understand what it is. It is not simply acquiring knowledge. It is not simply being able to, to speak and say the right things. It is not simply learning the right things to do and doing them. My definition of disciple or discipleship is one that I've said before, but I'm going to be repeating it a lot. But it is the, it is the acquisition of knowledge, the gaining of knowledge about God and the things of God that, that comes into our life and meets the Spirit in our life, the Holy Spirit who's already there in our lives, promised to us when we have faith in Jesus Christ. So knowledge meets faith, and we become more like Christ. I ended the last, last week's sermon by, by saying, you know, one of the ways you can begin to even on a very simplistic level filter through some of the things that you're doing in your life is you can ask yourself, is this thing or is this habit, is this attitude, is it making me more like Christ? Is it making me less like Christ? Or does it not really make a difference one way or another? And to kind of go through the things that you do. If you ever have a question of, should I be doing this? And see, the ritualist, the ritualist comes to, to, to a worship service or comes to a Bible study and if they really ask that question, does this make me more like Christ or less like Christ or makes no difference? For a lot of them, it makes no difference. They don't go to that Bible study saying, God, help me leave this Bible study more like Jesus. It's the goal of my sermons. It's the goal of my sermon preparation. Before I ever tell you anything, what I think God's Word says, it comes to, you know, to me that I am receiving it myself. And if I'm just simply saying, oh, I, I, I got a job to do. They expect me to say something and it's got to come from the Bible, got to work in little God and Jesus here. I can do that. That's all that I'm doing. If all that I'm doing is, is that and not really looking at God's word and asking, how is this sermon preparation making me more like Jesus? Then I'm kind of in that ritualist group. If you've come today and you've just come to check off a box, if you ask yourself the question, did going to church today, the worship service today, was it to make me more like Jesus, less like Jesus, or to have no difference? Notice, going to church is a good thing. I want you to come. I want you to be here. I want to be here. But I want us to be here because we long to be more like Jesus. 
That's why. It doesn't matter. It can be good things. You can be opening your Bible, things like that, reading your Bible. You can still ask yourself the question, does that make me more like Jesus, less like Jesus, or have no difference? You can, like me, I go, I go running. I love to run. I love to lift weights. And I told you that I had to come to some grips when I was younger because I had this crazy idea that I could weigh 200 pounds and have 5% body fat. But you know, if I asked myself, why was I doing that? To become more like Jesus? No. It was just for me. It hadn't necessarily made me less like Jesus. I suppose if I had pursued that path, it would have eventually. Because I realized along the way, the only way for someone like me to be able to do that is to, be able to, is to basically work out eight to 10 hours a day. That would be my whole life. And I'm pretty sure that would have made me less like Jesus. It can be anything. It can be your job. It can be your family. It can be attitudes that you harbor. But you always ask that question. Is this making me more like Jesus? Less like Jesus? Doesn't have a, make a difference. Well, my goal is that that question would resonate in your head that you'd, you'd be repeating in your head all the time as you go through your own life and the things that you do, the things that you think. Because again, the goal is to, to fill up that box, that, that bag of makes me more like Jesus, and to empty the bag that makes me less like Jesus. Of course, this means that we need to know what it means to be like Jesus, which means we go back to, we need to acquire knowledge. I hope you've also gotten this lesson that I think the Bible tells us and that we, it bears repeating because when you start getting into something like really being serious about growing in your faith and discipleship, the ever-present danger is pride. You suddenly start to know more and do more and, and you, you see more and you're more committed and then you start to look at your friends and others and you start to go, what is wrong with them? What's wrong with them is the same thing that was wrong with you before you kind of got it. And that is, is that you still were holding on that somehow through your efforts that you could be a disciple. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Anyone with Jesus, with Jesus in their life, can be a disciple. But no one without Jesus can be a disciple. Oh, you can try, and it, it can look pretty good, and you'll probably fool us. We'll probably think, you're an awesome Christian because of how much you know and what you do and all these other things. But you can't really be a disciple. You can't really be becoming more like Christ if you're trying to do it on your own, through your own efforts. That's our series. I don't know how long this series is going to go. It's chapter 5 through 7 of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know how long it's going to go. Um, I'm thinking probably about six months or so. 
And what I hope that you, that you see is that what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he, he gives us little bits and pieces of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow him, what it means to be in the kingdom. And we come to this first, this, this first sermon, this first set of verses, and it has that kind of interesting kind of title you don't usually hear a lot of times in church, but it's what being a disciple feels like. We always want to know, well, what does a disciple know? What does a disciple do? But it's interesting. Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount by saying, that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like. And that's important because feelings are part of our experience. They're part of the way we learn and we grow, but it's also a part of the way that, that we kind of sort out who we are. Uh, some of you know I, I started coaching Kalani's track team. And so last year, um, we were at you know, the, the divisionals, the Eastern Division. And it was kind of bad weather. They're having computer problems. So we didn't really have the final scores for the team scores. And just to give you some history, um, some of you are um, Kalani grads. so. I'm just the messenger. Kalani doesn't have a proud athletic tradition. They have their moments. Mr. Arnold Galatia over here won a state title back in the year I was born. Um, They have their moments. But the, the principal who also coaches with me and is a Kalani grad, he said, that Kalani had never won anything above like a district race. And we don't even have districts anymore. That's how long ago it was. That they had never won a track competition above a district race. And so we were at the Eastern Divisionals, catching the bus back, teams there. The principal calls me, said, boys and the girls won. I would play for you the video that the kids shot with their phones of when I told them that they won. But I can't play, I'd have to bleep out about every other word they said. Um, But they were so excited. They'd never won any divisional race before, any divisional competition before in track. Two weeks later, they had a video review of some of the races. It turns out the girls actually won. The girls won. But the boys, they had miscalculated the boys' races. And so we actually finished second, which is still really good, but we didn't finish first. But for two weeks, our boys had the feeling of being champions. And those feelings were real. In fact, if someone never went back and checked the video and figured out one race was scored wrong or one of the other school's runners was counted as ours, wouldn't have known. The feelings would still remain. Feelings matter. We experience them whether they're true or not. You know, this has probably happened to you in your marriage where Maybe you think your spouse did something and you're so mad at them, you're so mad at them, you're so mad at them, you're so angry, and then you find out they didn't do it. But you got all this real emotion. 
And so if you're a really, really good person, you take it out on the dog, right? But if not, you still find another reason. You didn't do that, but I'm mad at you for this thing, right? Because you gotta deal with the anger. It's real, it's there. We need to know that there's a feeling to being a disciple. There's a feeling. That's what we're going to look at. And I always try to say, you know, why? You know, why are we doing this? And, and really, this, today's message isn't, you know, the, the where we live, the world we live in. is not simply about this particular sermon, but it's about the whole series. You see, the world doesn't simply need more information. It doesn't need more information about God. It needs to be transformed. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship isn't just more information. It's transformation. If you've been a Christian for 50, 60, 70 years, if you've been a Christian for for five months, six months, and there's not a process of transformation that continues even today, you've got to ask yourself, what happened? The truth should be transforming us. And that's what our world needs. The world knows what to do with information. They reinterpret it. They refilter it. I go to the gym and there's CNN and Fox News right next to each other. And it's like they're covering two different nations. They have the same information. The world knows what to do with information. The world needs transformation. So here's Jesus, 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and he's about to deliver this sermon. Matthew's broken up into five great sermons, and this is the first one, called the Sermon on the Mount, most familiar. And he's about to do it, and, and, and he's there along the Sea of Galilee on one of the little hillsides, and he's about to talk. Now, if we really wanted to go back to how Jesus taught, you probably won't like it. Because I get to sit down, and you have to stand up. Everybody's like, yeah, I'm good. we'll We'll just do it the modern way, right? And the text is really clear. Jesus sat down. Because in their culture, sitting down was, that was authority. You sat down, it was authority. Opposite in our culture. But there he is. Along this mountain, this hillside, Thousands gathered around him. And it says this in chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is what some people have called the Beatitudes. They could be in the top ten of the most misinterpreted, abused scripture in all of the Bible. Because they fit the bill of what people want the Bible to be. It's kind of what they want a message to be. What some people want a, like a sermon to be, they don't want a sermon to be a, a carefully crafted argument. They want a sermon to be a whole bunch of stuff that maybe they can walk away with one good idea. They're not even listening for the main idea. And they're certainly not necessarily following 
the evidence and the argumentation and the logic. They just want to walk away with a good idea, something that makes them feel better or convicts them or something like that. And people are like that with the Bible. They want the Bible to be a book of good ideas, and so we just go there and we pluck them out and stick them on T-shirts or you know, embroider them and put them on the wall or something like that, make a poster. And the Beatitudes are one of those. But if we read and understand in context what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is doing is he's setting up the rest of the sermon. It's kind of like a, a prologue, a preface, a kind of a, a summary of what's going to follow. And he says these words that seem somewhat familiar to us, but then he adds something that makes it kind of weird. He says, blessed are the poor. If he stopped there, that'd be one thing. But he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's different. What does that mean? Uh, we, we, we could get it if he said, blessed are the poor, because then we could say, like, we could use this to justify going to minister to the poor, which, by the way, we should do, but not because of this verse. No, that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about how, how disciples feel. So what is it saying? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what I believe Jesus is saying. The poor in spirit is exactly what it sounds like. They feel in spirit, not in their wealth, their material goods, but in spirit they feel poor. What would make a disciple feel poor? Only one thing that's a healthy thing. And that is that they know how great God is. They know how awesome God is. They know that God is so far above them. Then when they really see who God is, they cannot help but be poor in spirit. They're broken. Because not only do they see how great God is, they see how, how, how not great they are. How so ungodlike they are. They know how far away they are. They know that they can never be like God. They know that they're not going to repeat the errors of Adam and Eve, the error of Satan. Even the era of, of modern humanity that says, you know, if we just keep evolving, we're going to become like God. They're poor in spirit. They know how great God is. They know how poor they are in comparison. Why is it important to feel this way? Well, it goes back to what we've been talking about as long as you think God is in first and you're kind of, kind of hanging around, as long as you think God is within reach, that if you just try, you can, you, can be, you can be like Him, as long as you think that, you can never be a disciple. You cannot. 
As long as you think you can be like Jesus, you can never be a disciple. Part of this, what Jesus is going to kind of unpack in the Sermon on the Mount, it's hard stuff. It's so hard that people want to, to explain away some of it and say it's not, we shouldn't take that literally. We should explain that away. It's like, no, he's telling you it's hard because it's, he's trying to tell you it's impossible for you to be like God unless Jesus Christ is in your life. That's the problem with the world. We were talking a little bit about this in Sunday school, that, that some of the younger generations, what they get better than us is that they want the world to be a better place. They want society to be a better place. They don't just want to live for themselves and do their own thing, but they want to do it on their own. They want to do it without God. Or if they hold on to God, they just want some kind of vague understanding of God. They certainly don't want anything written. God forbid that there's something written that tells us what it means to be a good society. Because the same book that tells us this is what it means to be a good, perfect human society also tells us that it is impossible without Jesus Christ. And so you think like, so does this mean that the disciple always walks around kind of mopey? Oh, poor me, I'm not God. Poor me. Nope. Actually, the opposite happens. Once you realize that you cannot do this on your own, once you accept that you need Jesus Christ in your life, it becomes very freeing. It's very freeing because you realize that it's not up to you. We do our part but it's not up to us. You might have heard this, this phrase before, somebody being thinking they're the center of the universe or the ruler of the universe. And I'm going to tell you, most of us feel this way at some point, and it's really hard. It's hard to try to be in control of everything and try to do everything that's supposed to be done and do it on time. It's hard. But when you really understand how awesome God is, how, how not awesome you are. And when you really understand that you need Jesus and you accept Jesus and it's now up to him, oh man, it's freeing. It's not depressing. The depression would come if simply we said, God is great, I'm not. There's no way. So I just give up. Jesus made a way. He made a way. And what he asks is, look, yeah, you're still gonna, I still want you to make the effort. But here's what's going to happen. When you make the effort, I'm going to come in and do far more than what you can do on your own. We let go. God takes hold. Understand, this isn't talking about a passive Christianity sitting around waiting for God to do something. The Bible is full of things that he, God tells us to do. But what He promises to do with His Spirit is to come into those things that we do and make them so much more 
and accomplish so much more than they could ever do when it's just us. The second verse, in verse 4, says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. True disciples see the world as it really is and mourn. This isn't just general mourning. This isn't just, oh, I'm, I'm sad because my cat died. It's not, oh, you know, I didn't get that promotion, or, you know, I, I'm sick, or I lost the game. No. True disciples see the world as it really is. You see, true disciples, when they, as you become more and more like Christ, you begin to see the world as Christ sees the world. You see it through his eyes. And it doesn't mean that you don't miss all the fun and games and all the things that, that, that look so good. But you can look through that and you can still see people gripped in fear. You can still see people living for themselves. You can still see that, that they need that they need the touch from the Savior. You see the world as it really is. You also see the, as Jesus sees, the effects of sin on the world. You stop listening to the excuses, but you see the effects. You see the consequences of sinful behavior in your society, in your community, in your family. You don't just keep saying, well, you know what? It's just how it is. And really, you know, just kind of just let it be. You see the grip of sin. And you see that sin is not just something that we do but it's actually woven into the very fabric of our society. Our economy depends on it. The way we organize ourselves as nations depends on sin. It's not so easy to break. You can't just say, let's just, let's just break that power of sin. Because if you break the power of sin, it means the entire world has to be remade. And it has to be remade on something other than what the world is based on now. Struggle to survive. The desire to continue your own kind. It's ultimately what drives the world. We see it. It's hard to get rid of it. It's hard to get rid of it in our own lives. And you have the eyes of Jesus. You mourn. Jesus. Keo read from Isaiah. He was called the man of sorrows. The man of sorrows. And he was the man of sorrows, not simply because he took the penalty for the world's sin, but he was the man of sorrows because he saw what sin had done to the world the perfect and good world that God had created. And finally, you see, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. True disciples see this problem with the world, see the problem of sin that's all based on power, 
They see that problem, and what they feel is they feel meek. We need to understand meekness, though. Meekness doesn't mean weakness. Meek, you actually, if you're truly going to have an attitude of being meek, you actually have to have some power, some strength. So if you don't have any power, you know, you're meek because you don't have a choice. So why are disciples meek? Why do they feel meek? Why are they called blessed? They're meek because they, again, see the world as Jesus sees, saw, saw the world. They see this, this, this world that's based on power and survival that eventually it's going to collapse within itself or that, or that someone is going to have to take over and control everybody. These are the only two options. He sees it. And says, no. I will not be a part of that. When you have all your, your friends who are Trump supporters and your friends who are Trump haters, and some of them sadly are Christians, all of their arguments are power-based arguments. Every single one. I don't even want to look at sometimes when I go on Facebook, as soon as I see certain people's names, I don't even want to read what they have to say because I know that it's not from a, a, this, this meekness that a disciple is supposed to feel. But if it's, it's out of that same world desire to dominate, it's the same thing. It's the control of power. Because you see, disciples are powerful. If they're truly disciples, they're powerful because they have the strength of the Lord, but they don't live according to power-based systems. They live in Christ. And as Christ's strength grows in them, so too does their love. You see, powerful disciples are marked by meekness because they are controlled by God's love. Get that. If you're a disciple and you're powerful, it's because God's love is so real, so abundant in you, that you no longer live according to the principles of this world. Say no. We're meek. And if we're meek, we inherit the earth. So disciples feel. It's not happy, happy, joy, joy all the time. We're poor in spirit. We mourn. We're meek. That's what we feel. And when we do, this is something that's so important to get. When we are this way, in this world, that wants to go in the opposite way, we truly experience God's presence we truly experience God's power. Because if you're like me, if I'm in this world and there's a, there's a game to be played, if there's a competition to be had, I want to win. I want to win. 
And I want to win by my definitions, not by God's definition. And instead of me wanting to win and dominate and be powerful, I say, no, I'm going to love. I know that's not me. That's what disciples feel. And when we feel it, we experience the kingdom even now.